Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, I don't care what you say, Gavin. It still tasted better than Iron Brew. It's the Fago of the UK. Ass. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your brand was a top-selling beloved American icon and you decided you had to change it, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 377, New Coke, Catch the Pepsi, edition of the show, where we talk about that time Coke fucked up real good. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Thinking podcast is brought to you by New Kombucha. It still tastes like ass, now with even more ass flavor. If you've ever tried brewed mushroom tea with mythical health properties that smelled like dirty feet and thought, what if it tasted worse? Then you're ready for new kombucha. Our new formula took all the redolent hints of fungus crotch rots and a dirty men's room in the Port Authority, intensified them, and bottled it for you to try at home. Some say we couldn't improve on the great taste of classic kombucha with this trademark redolence of gorilla with a bad yeast infection, but we did. So when it comes time for you to choose a tea that looks and tastes like it was brewed from a shit-filled baby diaper found on a West Texas highway in mid-July, try the taste of new kombucha. Also ahead tonight on INN, for nearly a century, Coca-Cola has had the same distinctive taste. Well, hold on to your hats. It's being changed. We'll tell you how and how much when we come back. Well, the real thing is in for a real change these days. Coca-Cola is altering its 99-year-old secret recipe. But if things have been going better with Coke all along, why tamper with success? INN's Sheila Stainback explains. It's Saturday night, a, a great new taste. It's a co- the Coca-Cola company pulled out all the stops in making its announcement. The normally staid and cultural environment of New York's Lincoln Center was turned into a taste fest for the new Coke. This you can drink it straight down and yeah. keep swallowing and not, uh, and not does it burn. No. It won't be long before the word gets out. The chemists say the new formula came about when Coke was working on a way to improve the taste of Diet Coke. Private taste tests told the company consumers like the new taste of Coke over the old one. I've mentioned before that my family was a Coke family. When I was growing up, we were Southerners, and Coca-Cola was just what we drank. I'll have a Coke then. It wasn't any kind of brand thing back in those days. We drank what my parents bought, and they bought Coke. My mom started drinking Diet Coke when it came out, and somehow I started drinking Diet Coke as well. You are a fat baby. I wasn't. I wasn't a baby. I was maybe 15 or 16 when I started drinking it. In fact, the entire household drank Diet Coke because my mom drank Diet Coke, and my mom did the grocery shopping. And she had one simple rule for dealing with complaints about the food she bought. 
I think you should get yourself a job and make your own money. Which settled those complaints really damn quick. And when I did get a job and make my own money, I was already well established as a Coke drinker and I had more important things to spend my hard-earned money on rather than soft drinks. You're in pussy. That's all I need. So I didn't bother with it. Now, with that being said, the biggest scandal of the 1980s... Iran-Contra was almost like the tip of the iceberg. Please, no one gave a shit about Iran-Contra outside of Washington, D.C. Most people thought it was a fucking video game. I am, of course, speaking of when all of American culture had everything it believed in and thought it understood and trusted ripped out from underneath them without warning. In front of thousands of fans in Bristol, Connecticut, the unthinkable happened. Their pre-recorded vocal track got stuck. Again, no, I, I'm referring to a scandal so massive that never again would American children be able to sleep soundly with the awful knowledge of it in their heads. He was on the tour and somebody put a bat onto the stage. What he perceived to be one of these plastic bats that you get in toy shops. And Ozzy bent down, picked it up, and bit his head off. It turned out that it wasn't a plastic bat, it was a real one. Oh, God. I mean, I did have nightmares about that, but again, not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the scandal that changed everything. I have sinned against you, my lord. Please, that changed nothing. Everybody knew, though, but their televangelists were balls deep in hookers. I'm talking about, of course, his new Coke. A little warning next time. Sorry, I should have put a trigger warning right at the top of the show so people could be ready for this kind of difficult content. But since we're here, I'm just going to press on. In 1985, the Coca-Cola Corporation, or the Coca-Cola Companies, which is actually what it was called then, decided to change the taste of Coca-Cola, and the world was never the same afterwards. Me, I blame Ronald Reagan. Of course you do. This is the story of what really happened with New Coke, and it is much, much dumber than you think. The beverage that came to be called Coca-Cola has a long and colorful history, beginning with his creator, John Stith Pemberton of Atlanta, Georgia. Now, Coke likes to tell you how John was a doctor and a pharmacist, but you know what they tend to leave out? That Johnny was a lieutenant colonel in the Confederate Army. And that a good union man skewered his traitor ass right through the chest with a saber at the Battle of Columbus in the last days of the Civil War. Now, John lived, but he'd become addicted to morphine wasn't much more than a fucking junkie. And he spent the rest of his life fighting that addiction to morphine by becoming addicted to cocaine. Would that work? Absolutely. Oh yeah, it did because now he was addicted to both morphine and cocaine. After some experimentation in 1886, John created a medicine, which he called Pemberton's French Wine Coca, which was a mix of booze and you guessed it, cocaine. Okay, this guy knows how to party. Dr. John marketed his Coke Fuel Fun Mix as a treatment for all sorts of disorders, including drug addiction, which I guess, fine, go ahead, depression, it's very hard to be depressed when you're coked up, alcoholism, it had booze in it, alcoholism among war veterans, not just regular ass alcoholism around everybody, and something called neurasthesia among, quote, highly strong southern women, unquote. And he came down with a case of the papers. 
And after accidentally mixing his joy juice with some carbonated water, Dr. John decided that he should sell it as a fountain drink instead of medicine. But you can rest assured that the booze and the cocaine stayed right there in the mix. Now, an early American marketing guru by the name of Frank Mason Robinson came up with the name of Pemberton's new happy sauce, naming it Coca-Cola, and created the loopy lettering still in use today. The name was a nice little, little, little alliteration that plays on the two main ingredients in the drink, though the Coca-Cola company has long tried to say it was just a cutesy little name and not referential in the least to the powerful drug that complies the heart of the drink. Pemberton claimed his buzz bombs would do all sorts of things, like be a, quote, valuable brain tonic, unquote, that would cure headaches, relieve exhaustion, calm nerves, and Mason marketed as, quote, delicious, refreshing, pure joy, exhilarating, and invigorating. And certainly, it was invigorating because of all that cocaine in there. Not long after Coca-Cola hit the market, John Pemberton fell ill. It was probably from the morphine and cocaine addiction that he had. Logical. Needing to pay for the monkey on his back, he began licensing the formula to other pharmacists in the Atlanta area, and John Stith Pemberton died shortly thereafter. His son, Charles Pemberton, took over the family business and the family addiction. Then you're just being mean. Oh, fuck him. He was probably a Confederate officer, too. Now, Charles sold the formula to a guy named Asa Griggs Candler for $1,750. That's about 50 grand in today's money. And after the usual squabbles among the drug dealers, excuse me, I mean the entrepreneurs that also have the right to sling the, uh, the Coca-Cola product on the corner, I mean sell it in their drugstore, Candler eventually came out on top, and Charles Pipperton also died from drug addiction. Ugh, it's funny how that happens, huh? Candler created the Coca-Cola company after he finally nailed down the full legal control of the name of the product and began to expand and grow Coca-Cola into the national and then international brand it is today. He would take the booze and then the cocaine out of it, but otherwise, it was pretty much the same thing. He was selling it to restaurants and soda shops all over the country, and once the company figured out how to economically bottle it, Coca-Cola was shipped around the world and went with Americans to war and became synonymous with the United States, as synonymous as racism, unchecked capitalism, patriarchy, imperialism, and apple fucking pie. I love America. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a brand as closely associated with America as Coca-Cola. It's beloved and embraced, but not only by the people of America, but as a symbol of America by the people of the world. It's one of the few mostly unproblematic brands associated with our fair nation. McDonald's and maybe Levi's are up there, but they just fall short of Coke. Without question, the Coca-Cola company was at the pinnacle of its reach and power in the mid-1980s, and it seemed like nothing could really touch them. Although, Pepsi was trying. One of these days, I'll get around to telling you the tale of the Cola Wars, but uh, today's not that day. Suffice it to say that Pepsi was nipping hard at Coke's heels through the 1970s, and by the early 1980s, it was Coke's biggest competitor and was vigorously marketing to the youngs. And the suits at Coca-Cola were looking at Pepsi and seeing what they thought was a shift to the Pepsi in the kids of the 1980s. Now look, I, I was very much of that new generation that was supposed to be making that choice, and 
I got zero recollection of my friends and I having any kind of discussions, much less disagreements over the choice between Coke and Pepsi. In fact, if someone brought it up, I suspect we'd just consider them... What a dweeb. And it certainly wasn't as important as things like... Tastes great. Less filling. But then I didn't have access to the millions of dollars in marketing data that Coke executives paid for that made them think that was the case. According to an article written by Jamie Logie on BetterMarketing.pub, things were actually looking grim for Coke. Quote, Coke, however, had had market share trouble for years. This goes back as far as the Second World War, when Coke only had 60% of the market share. By 1983, it had dropped to a shocking 24%, and this was where part of our story starts. Pepsi was getting really aggressive in its advertising and taking an enormous chunk out of the market. They were actually outselling Coke in supermarkets. It was only with vending machines and fountain sales and fast food restaurants that Coke was still staying competitive. People wanted more diet and non-cola soft drinks. Diet Coke had launched in 1982 and this was great, but they needed better control of the full cola market. They worked on a new formula in the early 1980s and called it Project Kansas not related to the epic band of the same name. Just wanted to point out that was in the original article, not my editorializing. The focus was on creating a new, sweeter version of Coke, and it seemed to be working. In taste tests with original Coke and Pepsi, this newer version of Coke seemed to work with most testers. Testers said they would buy this if it was a Coca-Cola product. There was a smaller percentage saying that they hated it and were very angry at the change. They even said this might make them stop drinking Coke altogether. Unquote. It was Coca-Cola CEO Roberto Guzietta who made the final decision. With the 100th anniversary of Coca-Cola coming up and sales down, Guzietta decided it was time to shake shit up by completely replacing Coca-Cola with the new formula. But what if I told you the taste was not entirely the reason behind this drastic decision? Quoting now from businessinsider.com, quote, author Constance L. Hayes, who wrote The Real Thing, Truth and Power at the Coca-Cola Company, found what may have been the real motivation behind the change. The new formula would save Coke about $50 million a year because it cut back on some of the most costly ingredients. A group of Pepsi chemists told Hayes Coke turned his back on the very thing that made it great, unquote. You see, boys and girls, in the olden times, sodas were not quite as sweet as what you drink today. I mean, they were still sweet, just, just not as sweet. Because back in the days of yore, the sugar used to make them came from, you know, sugar. What are you talking about? Like canes. Sugar canes. Grown in fields and harvested by indigenous people who exploited by capitalism so badly, they eventually overthrew their colonial masters and instituted a socialist government, forcing the United States to send our military to cut down there to come and deliver freedom to those poor, deluded brown bastards, whether they wanted it or not. And freedom was expensive. Delicious, but expensive. So, now... We make that same sweetener that we used to make from sugar cane from cheap-ass American corn. And that's what you've got in your sodas today. And new Coke was flavored with, guess what? Corn syrup. Cheaper, easy to reduce, costing less and to make your sugar bombs, but you can still sell it 
at the same price from the more that you were with the more expensive cane sugar. There's a persistent conspiracy theory that Coke made this blunder as part of a 4D chess game so they could just start using corn soup and regular Coke without pissing people off, which Coke denies, but they can't deny that's exactly what they did when Coke Classic came back. And before that, if you want the truth, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, New Coke was introduced on April 23rd, 1985. The press conference at New York City's Lincoln Center to introduce the new formula did not go well. Reporters had already been fed questions by Pepsi, which was worried that New Coke would erase its gains. Gozietta, Coca-Cola's CEO, described the flavor as bolder, rounder, and more harmonious, and defended the change by saying that the drink's secret formula was not sacrosanct and inviable. As far back as 1935, Coca-Cola sought kosher certification from Atlanta rabbi Tobias Geffen and made two changes to the formula so the drink could be considered kosher as well as halal and vegetarian. Guzietta also refused to admit the taste test had led to the change, calling it one of the easiest decisions we've ever made. A reporter asked whether Diet Coke would also be reformulated, assuming new Coke is a success, to which Guzietta curtly replied, no, and I don't assume that this is a success. This is a success. The emphasis on the new formula's sweeter taste also ran contrary to previous Coke advertising in which spokesman Bill Cosby, just let it slide, had touted the original Coke's less sweet taste as a reason to prefer it over the sweeter taste Pepsi. The company's stock went up after the announcement and market research showed 80% of the American public was aware of the change within days, unquote. What did it taste like? Well, before I weigh in, I'll let a professional critic named Mimi Sheraton who wrote in Time Magazine in 1985, sum it up, quote, New Coke seems to retain the essential character of the original version in that it too imparts a faint cinnamon overtone and is balanced smooth body with no sharpness or overpowering flavor. However, it is sweeter than the original formula and also has a body that could best be described as lighter. It tastes a little like Coca-Cola Classic that's been diluted by melting ice. I've always preferred Coca-Cola to Pepsi, finding the latter much too sweet and thin. Most of all, I dislike the citrus oil flavor I seem to detect in Pepsi. And though the new Coke approaches the sweetness and thinness of Pepsi, it does not have the lemony aftertaste. Therefore, I still prefer Coke. I suspect that those who have preferred Pepsi will continue to do so. Unquote. But I hear you asking, Dave, what did it taste like? Well... I mean, it was a long time ago, and I, I didn't drink a lot of it. Like I said, I drank Diet Coke, but like most people, I tried it, and it tasted, you know. We all tasted it, and it tastes fine. Yeah, it was fine. It tasted like Coke. Slightly sweeter Coke, but fine. It didn't taste like Pepsi. I mean, it did, in as much that all sodas pretty much taste the same. Sugar, fizz, sweet. But if I had to swear on my life, I would say that New Coke just tasted fine. Okay, well, there's a re-endorsement. Again, in my life, Coke, hardly the most important thing that was going on at the time. I was 16, just moved to a new school again, and I was busy trying to do important shit. Now, young man, what do you want to do with your life? Well, at the time, I wanted to be a heavy metal guitarist, get laid a lot, and become unspeakably rich. So, I don't know, in hindsight, I probably could have paid more attention to that whole Coke thing. And to be honest, this seemed to be the consensus of pretty much everyone who tried new Coke. Cultural memory wants you to believe that everyone was livid over the change. That angry mobs were marching around with pitchforks and sh torches shouting, How dare you? How dare you? But the reality was, most people were like, yeah, that's fine. 
and went on with their lives because, and I feel like I need to stress this, there was more important shit going on in the world in, 19, in April of 1985 than fucking soft drink flavor changes. Like what? Well, for one thing, wham, wham, the first Western pop band to play in China. Oh, you want something more serious? All right, all right. The Lake Freighter Canadian Progress ran aground in the St. Lawrence River in New York and had to be freed by tugboats on the very day New Coke launched. Okay, fine. April 1985 was actually a pretty quiet month, all the things considered. But again, we're talking about a soft drink. So, what happened to turn this story into the story that you know now? Quoting from a Mother Jones article in 2019, quote, For the first few weeks, things were going well. New Coke won newspaper taste test in Rochester, New York, and in Anniston, Alabama. Baseball fans in San Francisco liked it. Sales were up in Miami and Detroit. The London Observer's panel of children preferred the new stuff to the old stuff, too. The company's weekly telephone surveys of 900 consumers consistently indicated high favorability. Even people who preferred the old soda seemed okay with the switch. New Coke was good. At worst, New Coke was fine. Change, a triumphant Coke executive declared, is something the American people can identify with. A beverage's broad popularity, though, is not a very interesting story. Dissent makes a good story. People expressing strongly held and borderline pathological opinions about soft drinks makes a good story. And it didn't take long for reporters to start finding them. In Wisconsin, the Wausau Daily Herald reported on the trials of a man named Andy Gribble. So much of my life is changing outside of my control, he told the paper. Now, Coke, the one thing left from my childhood has been changed. He was 19. You think you're being a little dramatic? In San Antonio, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times found a man named Dan Lauk who brought his own coolers full of soda with him to restaurants and drank five cases of old Coke a week. 6.5 glass bottles only, never cans. Lauk called New Coke's debut the blackest day of my life. And from now on, my life will be divided into B.C. and A.C. Before the change in Coke and after the change in Coke. He told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. In Seattle, a real estate speculator named Gay Mullins formed a group called Old Coca-Cola Drinkers of America and set up a hotline where people could call to voice their complaint. They've taken away my freedom of choice, he told people. It's un-American, unquote. Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> but it was one particular group of people that had the biggest problem with the change. Remember how I said my family was a Coke family at the start of the show because we were a Southern family, and if you'd like to know more... Plug it in, plug it in. I covered all in detail in episode 331. Right now, someone is planning a, another Crystal Pepsi comeback. And down south... This kind of change was akin to blasphemy against God, the flag, and little baby Jesus. More now from Mother Jones. Quote, Thomas Oliver's 1986 book, The Real Coke, The Real Story, which is a definitive look at this saga, saw a strain of Southern reactionary politics in the back glass. To them, 
It was an extension of the Civil War, he argues. Here was Coca-Cola, a southern company, laying down its arms in deference to its Yankee counterpart. Oliver means Pepsi, headquartered in Purchase, New York. He continues, Coke, the quintessential southern drink, was changing its image and content to conform with rivals from the north. Changing Coca-Cola is an intrusion on tradition. A lot of Southerners won't like it, regardless of how it tastes. A University of Mississippi professor told the Chicago Tribune in 1985, why, it was another act of Northern aggression, a war between the taste. These are the forgotten people. Also, they wanted you to believe. They were sick and tired of other people defying the pace and texture of change. In that respect, Coca-Cola was grappling with a monster of its own making because it had spent tens of millions of dollars wrapping the corporation's identity around this particular kind of small C conservatism. And ideal small towns and wholesome values where all women are strong, all men are good looking, and the kids have high blood sugar. In the early 1980s, it had rejected a proposal to make Michael Jackson a Coke pitchman because Oliver reported he didn't fit with the company's all-American image. Jackson went to Pepsi instead, unquote. Because, sir, if they could not drink Coke the way it's treasonous, morphine-addicted cokehead creator had intended, then by God, they would not drink Coke at all. This new Coke is a slap to values and Southern honor. Why Coca-Cola represents good Southern values, faith, family, and above all, keeping the white man at the very top of the social hierarchy. If we allow these effeminate northerners to influence southern manhood with their limp-wristed, oversweetened taste before long, they'll be telling us that slavery was bad, women should be allowed to control their own bodies, and that the Lord Jesus Christ himself did not dictate verbatim the constitution of these here United States of America. Lest you think I'm just goofing on my southern cousins, again from Mother Jones, quote, one Alabama newspaper columnist hinted at a foreign possibly communist influence behind the whole project. I've had an uneasy feeling about Coca-Cola ever since a fellow by the name of Roberto Gorzieta was named chairman and chief executive officer of the Coca-Cola company of Atlanta, Georgia, U.S. of A. Roberto Gorzieta, if memory serves me correctly, is from Havana, Cuba. Imagine that, unquote. And like most things involving conservative Southerners, their numbers were small, but their voices were really fucking loud. And it wasn't long before these Confederate flag-waving fuckers dominated the news coverage because the news simply cannot resist finding the stupidest, loudest dipshits out there and portraying them as the voice of the common man. I mean, you've all lived through the events of 2016 through now and the subsequent pilgrimages of East Coast reporters to Heartland Waffle Houses so they can trace some slack-jawed, mouth-breathing racist dumb fuck as the common wisdom of the unwashed masses. And so too it was in 1985. But out on the West Coast, Gay Mullins, who had set up Old Coke Drinkers of America, became the voice and face of the old generation. And Gay sold war kits for 10 bucks a pop to the sort of people who today buy tactical body wash from Alex Jones. He made over $100,000 doing it. And Mullins actually filed a lawsuit to force Coke to go back to the old formula. I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but still, it got news coverage, what we call clicks today. He went on to open local chapters that dominated the press coverage of New Coke, 
because the press then, as now, loved stories that got ratings and gave two fucks about the facts behind the story. And it wasn't just Mullins. The bottlers of Coca-Cola revolted against the change and sued Coca-Cola. And unlike Mullins, they had money to make it, make it hurt. Sales had initially gone up after the introduction of a new Coke. Now they were coming down fast with all the bad press. People were claiming they were importing old Coke from overseas like it was whiskey during Prohibition. And soon enough, the board of Coca-Cola began agitating to go back to the old formula. And so it was, 79 days later, that the Coca-Cola company announced that they were bringing back the old formula in the Coke Classic iteration in addition to new Coke in a news conference that actually broke into regularly scheduled program. It interrupted days of our lives. In the 1980s, that was big fucking shit. That's how big this whole story had gotten by then. And again, I'm forced to remind you that we are talking about a fucking soft drink. Now, remember when I told you about the corn syrup a few minutes ago? Well, Coke Classic, when it came back, was made using that, and Gay Mullins, he said that it made him sick. I mean, he literally claimed that corn syrup and Coca-Cola Classic made him physically ill after, and this is exactly what he said, just two rum and Cokes. And he continued to garner media attention by demanding Coke return to using real cane sugar. But you see, Gay was not entirely unsupported in this cause because the cane sugar producers of the world rallied to him and were giving him money to support his lobbying efforts. Pretty soon, Gay Mullins and the old Coke drinkers of America were on the warpath about corn syrup and Coca-Cola by this time was fucking sick and tired of their shit. And they did what they didn't actually want to do because Gay Mullins had outed them with a little help from his sugar daddies. They admitted that they'd been using high fructose corn syrup and Coke five years before new Coke. Again from Mother Jones, quote, the real story slowly emerged. The Detroit Free Press put two and two together and asked Mullins why he had not previously mentioned during his two-month campaign to bring back old Coke that the stuff made him physically ill. Mullins said he thought the problem, at first the problem was with his own body, but he'd since come to understand that it was actually the beverage. He further went on to blame the switch to high fructose corn syrup for the reason why he could not tell the difference between the taste of new Coke and old Coke in a nationally televised taste test. Drinking Coca-Cola had killed his taste buds, unquote. Scratch the surface and you'll find the grifter. New Coke was Coke until 1992. And Coke Classic was, you know, Coke. In 1992, New Coke was rebranded as Coke 2 Fizzy Boogaloo and actually continued in production until 2002. Yeah, you could get a New Coke at Ground Zero on 9-11. Do any of you remember New Coke being around in 2002? I don't. I, I honestly thought it was gone after the early 90s. And the classic Coke moniker on Coke Classic continued until 2009. It's a Mandela effect, I guess, that I just remember. Like 1995, Coca-Cola just being Coke and classic being gone. New Coke has gone down as one of the classic blunders, right after getting involved in a land war in Asia, but ahead of going against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Inconceivable. 
Come on, that was obligatory. It's taught in business schools as part of if the ain't broke, don't fix it curriculum and is generally considered by, by most to be a massive failure. But the reality of it was that people did like new Coke. An objective taste test showed a slight but verifiable preference for sweeter tasting sodas like Pepsi and new Coke. Coke drinkers in the early days liked new Coke and for a short period of time, the product was an overwhelming success. Yeah. Lucas on Stranger Things, he didn't lie to you, people. Sweeter, bolder, better. You're insane. So you prefer the original thing? What? No, I'm not talking about the thing. I'm talking about new Coke. If Coca-Cola had stuck to its guns and weathered out the bullshit artist and lazy media, we would all be drinking new Coke today, and Coke would be dropping classic Coke for a nostalgia-tied product tie-in in shows about the late 1980s instead of the other way around. But Coke blinked and gave in to the asshats, and that was the blunder that business schools should be teaching. Oh, or not, I don't know, I don't know shit about fucking business or business schools. But what isn't taught in them is how New Coke became the nucleus of a growing movement in America against change itself. The people who bitched longest and loudest about the chains didn't give a fuck about the taste. They cared about what Coke represented in their tiny, tiny little minds. The United States of America. There was and still is a subset of people in this broken fucking country that believes with all their tiny little hate-filled hearts that America is worse today than it was when they were kids. And we call those people... White people. Amen. White people. Changing Coke was changing their version of history, and their version of history was one where God created America, capitalism was good and pure, and Ronald fucking Reagan was their savior. And if you start messing with Coke, then the next thing you know, the icky gays will be considered human beings, people with brown skin will be considered the same as people with white skin, and they could no longer force people to pray to their invisible sky wizard. It was a straight line from dipshits angry about new coke. Same kind of people, and in a few cases, where diabetes didn't get them, the exact same people who firmly believed you-know-who was making America great again and why we should just say fuck it to democracy and make him our orange emperor. It is unfair to say that new coke created these people, but it showed them that if they screamed loud enough and threw a big enough tantrum, they could get what they want. And that is why I hate New Coke. Not because it changed the flavor or disrespected the little baby Jesus or it tasted more like Pepsi, but because it gave the worst, the dumbest people in the fucking world the idea that they could force back change just by being all pissy about it. That is it for the show this week. It's one of those topics I wanted to talk about when the show pivoted a couple of years ago from angry man rants about modernity to old man waxes nostalgic about his childhood. This new Coke thing really was that big of a deal back then. And I learned some shit researching the show that I didn't know, which is another reason I keep doing this low-rated podcast. What I learned was that new Coke is a lesson in expectations and the value of keeping them low. Speaking of low expectations, rate and review the show wherever you, wherever you get your podcasts so other people can find it. Take a listen and then lower their expectations in your podcast recommendations. 
If you'd like to kick us a dollar to keep us a new Coke and Crippled Crystal Pepsi, hit us up on patreon.com and slash what the hell podcast. Now, you got to do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will be forced to replace your podcast with sweeter, bolder versions of those shows, whether you want him to or not. So for me, Dave, still don't know what they changed it for, Bledsoe producer. Every time I tried new Coke, the formula was just too sweet. Gavin! And all the fictional old Coke drinks in America on this show, we want to say that time may change me, but I can't trace the philosophy and the logic behind behind changing Coke. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs> oh, God, this is a wild ride. Too fast to take that test. Ch -ch 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 changes. Don't want to be a richer man. Ch -ch 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 changes. What the hell were you thinking? Stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Everyone loves jiggly girls. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.